And now it's time for the Wild Side News with your host, Sidney Wildsmith. You are about to go on a journey carried on the words of a man who, along with his wife and fellow adventurer, set out on a 1,000-mile quest from the wild lands of Canada to the calving grounds of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge as they followed the porcupine caribou herd on their annual migration. If you care about Anwar or the wilds and wonders that penetrate us all, then get ready for the journey of a lifetime when your voice of the earth continues on this special edition of the Wild Side News. Welcome back to the Wild Side News, and now, Sydney Wildsmith. You are about to hear one of the most amazing stories of adventure of the 21st century. In April 2003, Karsten Hoyer and his bride Leanne set out on an Arctic trek to follow the legendary porcupine caribou herd from the wintering grounds in northern Canada. Over 500 miles of frozen trails, biting blizzards, grizzlies, in a test of human endurance, to find out what being caribou really is. The story drives home to our modern world, better than any of recent times, why the preservation of the calving areas located on the coastal tundra of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge must be recognized and held sacred for the soul of the wild creatures, who will tell us their story as enacted each year for the past 27,000 years through this amazing story of being caribou. This is a special edition of the Wild Side News. I empower you to come along during the next two hours so that you too can come to know what being caribou is all about. And so the journey begins. Today I was listening to the President speak about the emerging global war on terror, and it just seems sometimes that the stresses of our world are overwhelming at times, and the challenges are enormous, and it's hard to find our way. And even the global war on terror oftentimes can be associated with, at least according to some people, um, the demands that are being placed on our future for issues such as oil in particular. And these issues then translate right into the ground here, including stresses potentially on uh, places like Anwar, where oil becomes the issue, quite honestly, at least from the perspective of our own national security. And so the, the answers to these questions become very complex. And sometimes it's very hard to find our way. But every once in a while, a person emerges who decides to challenge these kinds of uh, future visions with a whole different way of looking at things and trying to find out different levels of truth. And joining us today uh, is, a, is an extraordinary person, uh, Karsten Hoyer, 
who has written a book recently called uh, Being Caribou, just out by the great people at Mountaineers Books. Karsten, welcome to the Wild Side News. Thanks a lot, Sydney. Being Caribou is a story of an adventure that you and your wife took on where you decided that you were going to find out what it meant to be caribou, and we're going to talk at length about that. But first, let's talk a little bit about about you and your background that kind of helped to lead to this extraordinary challenge. So give us a background on kind of, uh, first of all, about your career and your experience. Sure. Um, so right now I'm living in, in Canada. Uh, we live in British Columbia, uh, sort of north central. Uh, uh, on one side of the valley where we live is the Canadian Rockies, and on the other side is the Caribou Mountains. And and through the course of the last ten years of, of my life, I've taken my biological training, so my degree in, in ecology, and applied it both to uh, work in wildlife biology in, in countries as, as far and wide as Slovakia and Poland and, and South Africa, and as close as to home as Jasper National Park and Banff National Park in Alberta, and and as far north as Avavik National Park, which is the extreme northwest corner of Canada's Yukon Territory, and so it borders directly onto Alaska and the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And and so I was posted up there over the past few years, and and having grown up in a very different environment in, in the city of Calgary, which would be very very much like uh, to Denver, for instance, in terms of geography, uh, out on the plains, but very close to the Rocky Mountains, you know, definitely below tree line. Uh, but, but to me, the, the Arctic environment, before I went up there on this assignment uh, as a park ranger, uh, was very foreign. And, and I didn't really know what to expect. I mean, I certainly had some ideas and some notions and some dreams uh, of what I'd like to see and what I'd like to experience. But when I got up there, uh, I set off on my first patrol of this national park, which is very remote. Um, the nearest town is hundreds of miles away, so we would, we would fly in uh, with a small plane with tundra tires, land on the Arctic tundra, uh, throw two inflatable rafts, and we would raft down the interior river uh, of this national park for 10 days. And that was how we would conduct our park patrols. Well, the very first patrol that I did in spring 2001, uh, and spring in the Arctic, is kind of late June, um, we encountered this caribou herd of 123,000 animals that was crossing through the park, swimming across this river on its way to their calving grounds, their preferred calving grounds, on the coastal plain of Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And and this this herd uh, of 123,000 animals, I mean, it's not like watching elk in Yellowstone National Park pass in front of your vehicle or, you know, a few deer in the main woods uh, pass in front of your, your, your house or your tent camp. This went on for two full days and two full nights of animals coursing across this river, and not only the, the caribou, but all the animals and all the life that they tow along that Arctic landscape with them. So that the, this, this huge sort of tundra landscape of rolling hills and mountains, and this deep river canyon, had virtually been silent before the caribou started arriving, and all of a sudden it was just throbbing with life. At one point we saw eight grizzly bears, uh, you know, in various 
stages of being downstream, hoping for some caribou that didn't make it across to wash up. Others lying in the bushes, waiting in ambush to scare caribou that were coming out of the water. We saw wolves, foxes, golden eagles dive bombing down, peregrine falcons. I mean, it, it was just amazing. And then after two days, and again, you know, this is all from the perspective of somebody who's never experienced anything like this before, except maybe, you know, through through the written word in stories about what it used to be like on the plains uh, where I grew up in Calgary uh, with a bison. And this is really that level of life still up in the Arctic. And so after two days of being immersed in this and not being able to sleep because of all the dramas that were constantly unfolding around us, the last few hundred animals climbed up over the ridge and disappeared to the west. And, and, and after having been a part of that energy and part of that power, it was really hard to kind of be left in its wake, in its silent wake. And, and a huge part of me wanted to, to, to go with it, to follow those animals over that ridge and to continue to observe and feel the, 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 the events that would unfold as they continued to pass across the landscape. And also to satisfy curiosity, like, where the heck? Were these animals going, and why were they traveling with such motivation and such force uh, across this landscape, so focused on getting somewhere? Where was that place, and why was it important? And so those are the questions that, that sort of swam around in my head as, as I continued on my patrol north down the river, and then we got picked up on the Arctic Ocean and flew back to the park headquarters office, which is in the nearest town of, of Inuvik in the Northwest Territories. And... And I got back, and, you know, part of this caribou herd was still inside me, rattling around, and, and it led me to, to books, to reports, to past television documentaries, to find out. I mean, I was just thirsty for knowledge to find out more about this caribou herd. And, and that's when I learned about where they were headed was their, their preferred calving grounds on the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, an area that by, you know, the best archaeological estimates, that they've been going back to year after year for at least the last 27,000 years. And I learned about this proposal that's been swimming around in the background and debated in very hotly contested issues, as most Americans know, probably the largest environmental issue in, in all of the U.S. right now, uh, of, of this proposal to drill for oil in the exact place where this, this caribou herd goes to have their, their calves every year. And so that, that really sort of interested me, concerned me, and I started thinking, wow, like, do people know? Do people understand that it's this amount of life, that it's, that, that it's this concentrated life uh, that's heading to that place? And I wanted to really share that, those feelings, those initial powerful feelings I've had of the caribou, and let it be known, because I think one of the greatest tragedies uh, in the world would be if... Uh, we sacrifice something or compromise something or lose something uh, and we, uh, without ever really understanding what's there that we've lost. And I think that, that would be a great tragedy in terms of this caribou herd in Arctic Refuge. So I started thinking about how to bring this story alive for people. And uh, I got talking to, to my wife, Leanne Allison, who's a you know, very accomplished adventurer, mountaineer, in her own right, and we'd both done a trip uh, a couple years before walking from Yellowstone up to the Yukon to try to bring alive uh, the story of wildlife that need to travel between parks and reserves and wildlife corridors, and we thought, could we do something like that with the caribou? Could we help to bring their story alive? 
And so over a period of months, this idea began to hatch of, of trying to be caribou, trying to travel like this caribou herd, travel with the caribou herd and experience everything they do, the, the wolf pack encounters, the, the half-frozen river crossings, the blizzards, the hordes of bugs that emerge uh, in, in early summer, and, and experience everything that they go through to get to the calving grounds and back to their winter range again. And in that way, try to sort of articulate the caribou's voice, try to articulate the value of the Arctic refuge that up till now we've always been talking about in barrels of oil, billions of barrels of oil, when in fact the caribou's voice has gone unheard. So we thought the value would be in everything they go through to get there and back again. Well, now there's some challenges here. Uh, first, <laughs> <laughs> I mean... First of all, I'm just trying to imagine how it is that you you happen to find a mate who would tolerate such such a vision. <laughs> Did you ever discuss this when you got, you, you know, when you got married? Uh, listen, I'm go. Is it possible that you want to accompany me on some of the most extraordinarily difficult challenges that you'll ever face as a human being? Well, isn't the vow that everybody isn't that the vow that everybody takes in marriage? I don't think so. <laughs> no. Well, um, I mean, Leanne and I have a quite a long history. In fact, we first met when we were five years old in kindergarten. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh, that's it, amazing. It, you know, we go back fair ways, and, and we wow. kind of fell out of contact with one another for uh, about 13 years. Huh. And then it so happened in university, I was working uh, as a canoe instructor for one of her best friends. And after I'd been working for two weeks, uh, her friend, who was my boss for that summer, called Leanne up and said, you got to come down to this canoe club and meet this guy that's working for me he's like the male version of you <laughs> that's funny so, so we met you know over a decade later and we, we kind of led these parallel lives in terms of interest and a lot of those interests did revolve around uh, around traveling in the outdoors and adventuring and so i think we really are kindred spirits and so you know immediately when i started to think of this idea uh, leanne's response wasn't thinking of of all the reasons why we shouldn't do it mm. she was really excited about the reasons why we should, and we we certainly, you know, over over the many months and uh, in fact a full year of preparations that it took to, to to get ready for this trip, we certainly encountered a lot of sort of naysayers or people trying to dissuade us from even trying to do this, and 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 quite frankly, there were tons of unknowns. I mean, most of the time when you set off on a trip. Uh, and certainly on our Yellowstone to Yukon expedition, this was the case. You, you make a route plan. You, know, you decide, okay, I'm going I'm to travel here, this valley, go along this ridge, and, and you, you sit down with you know hundreds of maps and and you work it all out: the distances, the elevation gained and lost, where you would put food caches, how long it's going to take you, and you develop a schedule and goals and destinations. And and this trip with the caribou really. You know, we sort of started heading down that road in our minds. It's like, wait a minute. Um, we don't know where these caribou are going to go because, quite frankly, their migration routes change from one year to the next, both in timing and route. I mean, they could take one mountain range from the Yukon up to Alaska one year and completely switch to another one the next year. And they might even start up one and then kind of change their mind halfway through because of whether it's snow or weather or other things we don't even understand. And, and adopt an entirely different route. And so there's there's a huge amount of unpredictability and 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 and, and lack of th things to hang uh, the future on for us. And I think that became the big.
biggest challenges we started to prepare for this trip is is all the unknowns, uh, all the unpredictability, un- unpredictabilities that we were going to head out into, and and so we couldn't even we couldn't put one food cache in before we left. We didn't know if we were heading for off uh, for four months or six months or seven months, and we had to put all our faith in these wild animals as our guides, and and really sort of surrender ourselves to to every all their whims. That, to me, in reading your book, was one of the most amazingly difficult things to perceive is how, as a couple, or an individual, but this was a couple, you make the decision to head out on an uncharted course, and as well, not just an uncharted course, but an, uh, an uncharted course through some extraordinarily difficult terrain. You, I know that uh, you did a lot of research in terms of the, the there have been uh, radio-collared studies of the caribou movements, and so you had a concept of where they go historically and how they might travel but to head out uh into that terrain with everything on your back you know um how on the what how, how did you prepare i mean what let's talk a little bit about kind of the even the technical side the gear side of this how did you imagine what did you put in your pack how did you make those decisions because those had to be extremely difficult decisions no they were and and uh, you know I, I joke in the book in the prologue that sort of our collective Arctic experience amounted to a couple months. Uh, and most of those uh, experiences were were on a well-stocked raft, river raft, running down a river. So it's a completely different idea when you start thinking about traveling overland. And and really all Leanne and I had to tap into were our mountaineering skills. Um, and so we really did, pro- I mean, we considered a lot of different options, Sydney, but what we really decided in the end is because we have to be able to sort of pack up and go at, at a moment's notice uh, when the caribou start to move, or if they stop, we have to be able to pitch this tent. You know, uh, it has to be very quick to set up. It has to be portable. It has to be light, uh, so that so that we don't get tired uh, from carrying excessive weight. And we have to be able to pitch it on a rocky ridge or in a swamp or absolutely anywhere. We we sort of melded. Uh, sort of mountaineering technology with this unorthodox notion of, of following uh, a wild herd of animals across the tundra. And so we, we, we dried all our own food. Uh, we packaged it up into, uh, um, I guess, balls, for lack of a better word of describing it, that, that were wrapped with tape and garbage bags and crushed newspaper for padding, and then had those all sitting in, in a warehouse uh, one town on the Canadian side and another town on the Alaskan side where we could call in for them as we were going, as we were running out of food, we'd call in to have them delivered by, by bush plane and, and, and dropped out of the sky essentially to, to our location. We would communicate that uh, over a satellite phone, but all of a sudden, okay, we're going to take a satellite phone, so now we have to have some way means of, of charging it over these many months. And so that led to... Uh, you know, a whole other arm of research into the latest uh, 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 solar panels and, and, and recharging technologies. And, and then the, once we had that kind of figured out, we thought, well, if we've got some battery power, maybe we can uh, do some filming of this trip as well. And so that led to the whole thing where Leanne actually headed off on a week-long course in filmmaking. And, and, and you know, to her incredible credit, not only did this trip, but pulled off uh, an award-winning film uh, about the journey as well. 
Well, there are lots of decisions. I mean, it's one thing to take off uh, cross country uh, with a, ba- a heavy pack. And by the way, how? What kind of weight were you each carrying? It really it varied uh, depending on how recently we received a food su- supply. So mm-hmm. right after a food supply. Uh, you know, our packs weighed somewhere in the order of 60 to 70 pounds. Those are very heavy packs. Yeah, and at one point, uh, you know, when we, I don't know if you remember the book, we're in the sort of heart of the post-calving rush. We're just doing all we can to keep up. And in order to avoid having to wait for a plane to come in, we actually carried a whole month of food. So that was 90 pounds once you added up the month of food and, uh, and all our equipment. But here's the thing that now I, <laughs> this is the thing. So you got these heavy packs, but you're also going through snow and over over mountain passes, and uh, that's as strenuous as it gets. Yeah, and 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 we really didn't have a good sense, I think, of of what the snow conditions were going to be like before we left. And and part of the reason the caribou migrate south uh, after they calve is they're trying to get back uh, below tree line. The latitudinal tree line um, before the the winter winds hit, because what the winter winds do is they take the the snow and there's not tons of snow, uh, but there's enough snow and it, it just packs it to concrete like consistency out on the open tundra. So the caribou can't dig down to get at their food, so they so they migrate down below tree line to spend the winter where the the trees, although they're kind of these stubby, small, short trees, not anything like we're used to. Uh, down south here, uh, but these trees still do provide enough shelter that the snow remains very soft, and so the caribou can crater down. Well, it, it makes for great feeding for the caribou in winter, but it re- makes for horrendous traveling. I mean, it's kind of like walking through this um, uh, sugar-like consistency, consistency uh, of snow that that collapse underneath you. So it's, it, it was we, when we started out from the Porcupine River. Um, which is kind of the, the northern extent of their winter range. Uh, it's still treed in that area, and, and we set off, you know, p- presuming that we could just sort of ski uh, in the wake of this caribou herd. And what we found was, even with these long, uh, you know, uh, eight-foot-long skis, our weight was enough that we would just plunge through right to the ground. There was absolutely no support in the snowpack. And so we were wallowing, and... and and within minutes of leaving that very first day, and already overwhelmed with the whole notion of sort of heading off into this great unknown on this uncharted route, and the, not knowing even how many months we were going to head off for, we're, we're, we sort of make the realization within the first few minutes that we're not even going to be able to travel for the first while uh, in the way we'd assumed we would. We, it, we were carrying our skis and having to walk in the trenches that the caribou had left behind, uh, you know, very much like balancing along a narrow, slippery log for kilometer, kilometer after kilometer. And I'm, very exhausting. That type of snow is impossible because it's uh, there is no traction. You you just you just I, I've been in that and it's uh, it's as difficult as it is. You just uh, each foot just sinks. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like walking on frozen ball bearings. Yeah. To some extent. Yeah. But you know what? It was a neat thing too because immediately we just had to. The only way forward was to fall exactly in the caribou's footsteps. Mm-hmm. So it became very metaphorical. You know how much even we had to give up our notions of how we we're going to do the trip right in the first few minutes. 
all of a sudden we're carrying these skis instead of instead of using them. Now that all changed mm-hmm. as we did break out of tree line over the first mm-hmm. few weeks and we hit that concrete like first few weeks. I like that. No, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's talk about that timing because timing was a very critical thing. I mean, you were on foot. It, this wasn't the National Geographic uh, expedition where you're kind of dr- the, the helicopters drop you. They they have search teams and and they drop you within. Uh, you know, 500 yards of your de- of of the herd. Uh, you know, you guys had to leave from a point, and then try to find the caribou, which all by itself was a challenge, and try to catch up to them, and then follow them. And we're going to talk about that that takeoff point. But let's talk how it is that you came to decide, literally, when to leave. I mean, that's a big decision. Timing is critical. Yes. No. Certainly, and that that would set up whether or not the whole journey was successful. And, and so the big question for us was, you know, are these caribou kind of milling around their winter range, or are they starting to migrate? And we didn't want to leave too early, because if, if they weren't migrating yet, we would expend sort of our valuable energy and, uh, and, and, and food and, and, and enthusiasm uh, kind of going in circles following this caribou and not sort of heading towards their, their, their calving grounds. So we, the, the timing was critical, but even from the you know the, the the biologist reports and the radio caller data and everything that you just couldn't sort of discern from a distance on what was actually happening, whether the caribou were kind of starting to to head north or not. And so what we decided to do is we flew in uh, to a small uh, uh, village in the in the Yukon called Old Crow, and it's a Gwich'in village. Gwich'in being a, a, a sort of band of Athabasca native people who have lived up there for, for, and their survival has been tied to the caribou for, for over 10,000 years now. And, and so these people, it's a, it's a small town, uh, a handful of, of, of trucks that have been flown or barged in over the years. It sits out along the Porcupine River. And on every table of the 400 residents, you know, as we went into their small cabins, there'd be a, a bowl of dried caribou meat out back. There'd be caribou skins hanging from the, the hunts. The, the fall before, and everybody, the talk on the street would be like, uh, you know, in the rest of Canada during the hockey playoffs, but it wasn't about hockey, it was about caribou movement. And so these people are incredibly attuned to, to when the caribou might be through and which direction they might be going. But a lot of that talk, we soon realized, was, was very speculative. And people were, within, within an hour of us arriving, and, and asking questions about where caribou might be and what they might be doing, we got a whole host of, of answers, everything from that we were already too late, they'd already been through uh, and over the Porcupine River and well north to people saying we're way too early and we should wait till May. Right. This is in early April. So Leanne and I immediately are sort of plunged into the state of confusion and back and forth. And and then we happened upon this, this uh, gentleman that figures very prominently as a character in the book, uh, at the beginning and the end, Randall Tlitchi, uh, a 50-something-year-old Gwich'in man, and he'd been out hunting the day before, and he had uh, got a few caribou. And so we ended up at his doorstep and, and, and talked about what we'd like to set off and do. And, you know, he didn't have any immediate answers, and he didn't offer any opinions, unlike a lot of the other people we'd run into. And he was very quiet and soft-spoken. But there was something about the look he gave us and the way he invited us in, and we had a lunch of caribou soup that really sort of uh, told Leanne and I that this was somebody whose advice we should listen very closely to. You know, it was more of a 
it's hard to articulate. It was more of a, a sense or a feeling than anything else. And so over the course of the afternoon, uh, he agreed that the next day he would take us to this place where he'd been hunting about 60 miles outside of town. And uh, we would go by snowmobile uh, the next morning. And so off we headed, and sure enough, uh, uh, later that day, we encountered uh, groups of hundreds of caribou crossing the river in the same spot. And yet, uh, as we pitched camp that night, it was in a small trapper's cabin along the river, and the river's frozen at this time, of course. We're all uncertain, and even Randall's uncertain, whether indeed the caribou are migrating or not. And and that night it gets dark, and, and we, we end up around... The, the table by candlelight, and there's a, a small fire going in the in the wood stove, and Randall starts to uh, tell all these incredible stories, stories about times when he'd been hunting and 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 his boat had blown up and burned, and he'd had to do a combination of swimming and walking for weeks to get back to town, and uh, and and stories about his grandfather who had always known. Uh, when to send out Randall and his brothers to go hunting, when the caribou would be coming through, and just the incredible power that he, that he had. And, and and Randall started giving us advice on, on the journey that lay ahead, and, and probably one of the most important pieces of advice he gave us was to listen to our dreams, to pay attention to our dreams. And that night, uh, I made there some old caribou skin hides lying around the cabin, and I made a nice bed for Leanne. And uh, so she went to sleep, and I slept on the floor, and Randall slept on the bunk on the other side. And, and the next morning, we woke up and still uncertain, no caribou in sight now, and still uncertain, should we head off and follow them, or should we still wait? And then Leanne recalled that she'd, she'd had a dream that night, and, and the dream had been of the Porcupine River, which was uh, covered in you know a sheet of ice many feet thick, and and, and capped with snow at this point, she had a dream that the, that river had broken up. It had started to melt and flow. And that dream, like, I was kind of skeptical, you know, here this native man has told us to pay attention to our dreams the night before, and now all of a sudden my wife was having this dream, and, and what did it all mean, and was it very believable? But Leanne's look assured me that it was true. It's indeed, it was a very vivid dream. And I looked at Randall, and he had none of that sort of questioning or doubt in his in his eyes and he just sort of quietly said well there's your answer you guys got to get going and mm-hmm. so literally we we packed up and uh, we we found the most well-trodden trail that left the river and we followed that up the first hill into our first forest and and took our first footsteps and that was how this this incredible journey started and i'd like to take a break here And when we return with Karsten Hoyer, we're going to take that first step with him. So hold on. We'll be right back here on the Wild Side News.
Welcome back to the Wild Side News. And now, Sydney Wildsmith. What's all this about being caribou? You're about to find out more as Karsten and Leanne have to decide if it's the right time to leave, if they should or even can make the commitment to take that first step into the unknown. The journey continues when your voice of the earth returns here on the Wild Side News. We continue our story of adventure and spirit and mystery and dreams with Karsten Hoyer, who is the author of Being Caribou, which is published by Mountaineer's Books. And he's taken us to the point where he's about ready to uh, take literally that first committed step to this extraordinary unknown adventure. Karsten, welcome back. Thanks, Ed. This is my, this is, when I was reading your book, and by the way, it's a terrific book. It, it literally takes the reader along with you. I feel like, I mean, really, it's like I know both you and Leanne, uh, as friends having, having read, uh, the book. And the thing that occurred to me, I, I'm a dreamer and a bit, a bit of a romantic and I like to take on challenges and this and that. And I do that, and then every once in a while, you hit a point where, okay, but now it's the moment where you have to literally, it's all everything's in place now, and now you have to take that first step. Yeah. And I'm just curious what was going through your mind literally at that moment. Well, I think uh, we were overwhelmed, to be perfectly honest. And, and I think the, the biggest thing that overwhelmed us at that point was just this lack of having any sort of a goal other than to follow wild animals. I mean, we all, what helps us, I think, always to get through tough spots or to move forward as, as humans is to visualize where it is we're headed, to be fixated, if you will, on some sort of a goal. I mean, that's that's how we're brought up, and that's that's how we're kind of taught right from grade school on how to lead our lives. And and I think, you know, it's, it's a convenient way, and, it, and, it's, and it, it's a very productive way to some extent. But I think it's also a way that starts to close down other possibilities. Um, we, we travel through a lot of life, I think, with blinders on, uh, just so focused on where it is we want to want to get. Uh, and, and when I say where, I mean, you know, whether it's in terms of some sort of uh, physical situation that we want to be in or some sort of financial situation or some sort of emotional situation. And, and, I think in, in direct contrast, what we had to learn to do on this trip, and this was sort of the most painful part of starting, was to let go of all of that, to let go of of, of, of being able to visualize where it is you're headed, because we didn't know, and, and we really had to give up all our control over our future uh, uh, to these caribou that, that we couldn't even see at that time. You know, we'd glimpsed them the day before with Randall uh, on the river, and now we were just following their trail. And not know it really, even knowing if we'd ever see them again, if this whole sort of far-fetched scheme of 
of trying to be caribou. And, you know, these caribou can move uh, 20 to 50 miles a day is what some of the, the scientific studies have shown. And, and, and here are these two humans with not much Arctic experience sort of trying to follow with them and hoping that once they do catch up to them, the caribou somehow will accept them, uh, accept us, and we would sort of spend this euphoric time of, of traveling and maybe even becoming part of the herd. So th- those are all ideas and all those sort of doubts. And certainly, you know, those doubts have been articulated. We, we, they weren't only our own doubts. They've been doubts articulated by our parents, uh, by other biologists, uh, uh, certainly by a lot of the, the Gwich'in people in, in, in Old Crow uh, and other communities, and also, you know, some of some of the people that I'd worked with, uh, some very well-seasoned travelers, the uh, park wardens, uh, park rangers in, in a national park uh, where this whole idea had been hatched uh, a little bit farther to the north. So, so I think that more than anything describes our, our state of mind was was full of doubt, and really the only step we could we could do was to just sort of step forward, and much like traveling at night with headlights, is just sort of see where the next corner and where that next gap through the trees and where that those next few hoofprints before us led. Did you and Leanne have a, a means to communicate that moment when you decided it was time to? commit I mean, it's really a moment you either you know you had the right to to turn back and say you know maybe we really shouldn't do this yeah i mean i think i mean we had by that point we had we had put in so much effort and, and planning and preparation uh you know it would have been terrible to kind of uh, give in at that point i think we really leanne and i are both of the uh temperament and, and ilk i think that once you decide to do a journey, and that moment of commitment had come many months earlier, if not a year earlier, for us, mm. and 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 it really was time to sort of uh, see if the if the actual journey could be what we had visualized, or whether it would be something else. And we we had to at least try. We had to at least to set off and and start to understand that. And and you know, I, I guess some of my doubts I had expressed the night before with, with Randall and, and even the day before when we first met him in the, in the village of Old Crow. And, and he kept saying, well, when you get to the calving grounds and when you follow the caribou off the calving grounds, this and this might happen or you might see this. And, and I kept correcting him saying, no, no, Randall, if, like if we get to the calving grounds, if we can follow the caribou. And he would just fix me with this steady stare and he'd say, no, no, uh, you have to believe to do this, you have to believe you can do it. And I believe you guys can do it. Mm. And and just sort of, you know, some of his words were really ringing in my ears. And it was funny, like, living in in a, in, in southern society, I guess, and, and even in the city of Calgary, where a lot of our friends and family continue to live, a uh, very urban environment, the doubts were greater in those kinds of places. Uh, but once we got farther and farther north, uh, and closer to the people who actually knew this caribou herd and, and their movements and knew that environment. Uh, certainly there were still doubts, but those doubts seemed to be less the farther north and the closer we got to the actual start of the journey. So by the time we set off, I think we the doubts were starting to almost fade a little bit. And just like, yeah, like maybe this is possible. And, and so off we went. I mean, we were still doubtful, we were still worried, but off we went. There comes a time, I think, at any in any trip, uh, and maybe it's just a moment where you just have to kind of throw yourself 
at, at the fate and the compassion of the world with the, the, the belief uh, that uh, it will accept, maybe even nurture, embrace you, you know, the world, that, that there is compassion just in the, in the greater world to see you through a difficult time. And that might come in swimming a river, it might come in a bear encounter, it's sort of in these moments of, of lack of control. And normally those those moments take many days, if not weeks, or maybe even months to get to on, on a on a normal scheduled journey where you have your route set out before you. I think with this journey, we had to confront that moment right at the start. We had to say we are sort of going to step off and out into the great unknown and, and of a, a great unknown idea and a great unknown landscape. But we believe that the world is this compassionate place that will sort of greet that courage and 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 reward that bravery with incredible experience and and I think this this was a uh, a trip which demanded that very early on that kind of commitment and and it was difficult to do but it also came with incredible rewards and and I think those are the rewards that that excited me the most about uh, telling this journey in the book uh, and something that we could get at a lot more in printed word than we could at in the film is sort of the spiritual side of this trip what happened uh, as we let go of our human tendencies to, to be fixated on goals and objectives and and became much more open to happenstance and and uh, unscheduled encounters and and directions uh, taking hold of us and steering us to different places not only in the physical landscape but the mental landscape as well one of the things that amazes me about your journey is, uh, first of all, you, you had an idea of approximately how far it would be to the calving grounds. How far was that? Well, a straight line distance, I guess, or uh, arcing along one of the mountain ranges which the caribou might take on their migration would be somewhere in the order of, of 400 miles to the calving grounds. And, and the caribou movements, once they do start the migration, once they select a route, it tends to be fairly direct migrating to the calving ground. Um, after the calving happens, and the post-calving movements, because we needed, you know, to have a true measure of, of what the value of the calving ground are to this caribou herd, we felt we not only had to get there with the caribou herd, but the value uh, of those calving grounds was also in everything they went through to get back to their winter range. That is what actually, I think, is, it takes us to a whole other level. I think a lot of people can imagine following a caribou a herd to their calving grounds and saying, wow, we did that. You committed to a return trip. That, to me, is, I mean, it's almost incomprehensible for me to say, having gone through what you did 400 miles in this kind of condition, that's an, I, I think I would have said, that's enough, okay? I, you know. But you, <laughs> well, had, to, I mean, you had another whole other, and we'll talk about that, but... You had also to commit to returning through the same hitting. Hitting this again, you, you guys went a long ways. Yeah, it was about in its entirety. I mean, you do tons of, especially after the calving, when their their movements become uh, much more random, kind of circling and feeding, and and at the whim of of insects and winds. There's a lot more meandering, and, and so it's impossible to know exactly what distance we traveled, but kind of roughing it out on maps. It, it was somewhere in the order of a 1,000 miles, the, the whole trip over the, the span of five months. Mm-hmm. And and really to kind of, uh, I guess, articulate it uh, very plainly for the listener, 
Now, this is this is truly one of the largest, uh, wildest, intact ecosystems and landscapes, wild landscapes left in, in the entire world. I mean, we wandered through this area for five months. The range of the caribou herd is somewhere in the order of about ninety thousand square miles, and 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 in those five months, you know, we didn't cross one road, we didn't cross one pipeline. Uh, there aren't any power lines there except for the villages of Old Crow and over on the Alaskan side, places like uh, Venetee and, 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 and Arctic Village, which are all below treeline. There's, there's no human habitation. There's, you know, apart from the odd uh, research shack, there, there's no human structure. So we're really talking about a vast, vast, uh, wild open area and one of the wildest areas left. You left in April, and... Talk about the, I mean, a lot of people think, well, April, that's spring. But let's talk now about your taking off and uh, how you how you tried to find and determine where these caribou were. I mean, that's, that all by itself is, I mean, you're walking and you're carrying all of this stuff. And then you're supposed to somehow figure out where they are and catch up to them. Let's let's discuss that journey until well, the moment where you actually, because there's many, many levels to this. And your book goes into this and it's an extraordinary story. But let's try to get to the let's let's move from this point now to where you finally made contact. Okay, and and, and just to again place the the, the listener a little bit. Um, so we left uh, in early April, and this was in two thousand and three. And uh, early April, uh, and we're just north of Arctic Circle, so you're already getting a lot of a lot of light well well past the the normal evening and. Uh, uh, night hours that you'd be used to in, in more southern locales. So it was light from about 10, uh, or sorry, uh, from about 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. at wow. this time. Hmm. And those days are only going to lengthen as the, as the uh, trip goes on. Of course, start to decrease after the summer solstice. But the temperatures uh, during those nights are still getting down to somewhere in the order of minus 35 degrees Fahrenheit. So frigid. Uh, and then and then if it was sunny during the day, they would climb, you know, very close to freezing. Hmm. So you're you're going everything from from traveling in in uh, in a light jacket and a and a light uh, wool hat to being burrowed underneath this uh, a down sleeping bag that is you know, almost a foot thick uh, with feathers at night, uh, uh, just curled up against one another for warmth. Um, so, so that gives you an idea of the temperatures, and the, the landscape is is quite rolling. So, quite high hills that then start to break out into into rocky ridges the farther north you go, and 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 lightly treed uh, again, and and soft snow where the trees are. So, kind of wallowing along these caribou trenches, and and where the animals were traveling, they would, you know, in the interest of saving energy, they be they would have been traveling single file. So, these trenches you're following. Have literally been uh, passed over by tens of thousands of hoofs, so they're very well packed, and and so they're you know apart from their uneven surface, they're almost like these these very very narrow sidewalks. But we were tied to those; we couldn't move anywhere else uh, out into the landscape. And then what started happening as we followed them over the first few days, the caribou where they had fanned out to feed, all of a sudden those thousands of hooves. Are, are splitting and forking until you're on, and, and you have to make a decision each time which one to follow. 
and so we're always following the the, the most well-packed trail. But after some time, if the, if the entire herd had fanned out to feed on the the lichens uh, poking through on the rocks or, or or some of the lower tree branches on a hillside, all of a sudden you're you're in soft snow again because only one animal has has gone anywhere. They're not walking single file anymore. They're just feeding. And and you'd have to find the place where all those single trails collected and braided back together into a rope of a trail where you could follow it back out. So incredibly kind of confusing. And, and even these patterns we hadn't really thought about ahead of time. We just assumed, okay, once we're on a trail, we're on a trail. But a trail changes as time goes on. So we, we really struggled for that first little bit. And, and we noticed over the first few days the tracks that we're following are getting older. So we haven't even found the caribou, or we haven't even seen caribou yet, and 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 of course, in the back of our minds, is, is this even possible? And we're getting direct feedback that maybe it isn't. We're already falling falling behind. We're not traveling as fast as the animals. We're falling. But then you know things are very dynamic, of course, and, and things started to change as we as we as we got a little bit higher on the ridge tops. The snow would be harder because it'd be windswept, and we could travel faster and even ski at times. So we started making up some time there. Uh, the trees started to thin out the farther north we went. And the weather during the day, especially, started to warm to the extent that some of the south-facing slopes actually started to lose some of their snow. The sun would carry enough heat during the day that it would uh, it would uncover uh, some of the grass and lichens and caribou forage underneath. And this was incredibly well-timed on the caribou's part. I mean, they would have known that this was happening. And, and all of a sudden, the investment of starting to head north from the soft snow into that um, tundra landscape where it's concrete snow in the winter, it, 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 it would pay off because the sun would be starting to melt that concrete-like snow and they could continue to feed as they headed north. Well, what it, what that did is it started to slow them down. And so uh, by the end of the first week, Leanne and I were starting to encounter uh, some small groups of caribou. And, and, and again, we weren't convinced that whether they were feeding or migrating still. And finally, I think it was on day five, uh, as we climbed probably one of our first really, really tough ascents of, 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 of one of the bigger mountains and kind of sitting exhausted on the top, sweating, all of a sudden groups of thousands of caribou started to thunder uh, from behind us and, and come up this incredibly steep slope uh, in our wake and, and move around us through that first night. And what was your feeling at that time? That that was sort of euphoria. I mean, everything we had ever imagined this trip could be, and you know, this is a, a trip a year in the preparation, and and all the sort of visuals we'd had in our mind of what it could ever be, and, and, and sounds, you know, the snorts and the click of tendons as they're passing around the tent, the smell of the urine and the and the and the, and the tufts of hair blowing past us in the breeze. Everything that we'd ever imagined, all of a sudden it was happening right there around us on day five. And it was just, it was unbelievable. And not only that, but, you know, from that same ridge, we watched our first uh, wolf chase of the caribou uh, take place. And, and to watch that from this ridge and this and this horde of animals kind of move almost like a, a school of fish with this dot steering and moving and breaking them apart. Uh, behind them, uh, just to, to, to see those kind of patterns on that vast scale in this 
beautiful open landscape. Uh, we were just completely blown away. So all all of a sudden, there was no doubts in our mind. And and even though we'd been exhausted minutes before, all of a sudden we were just filled with this surge of energy. And and I think that was very much the the beginning of this sort of tension that goes on throughout the entire uh, trip, where we're 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 trying to keep that feeling like we want. We're almost becoming. We've almost already become addicted to that feeling of being in amongst the caribou, of that power, of that energy, of that life, of things happening all the time, and and. And, and that becomes our motivation for moving and for pushing ourselves further and further physically and mentally uh, during the course of the many months that, that transpired. That had to have been a, a, a massively spiritual moment where suddenly uh, the, the purpose of this becomes real. Uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, it certainly was uh, spiritual, but it was almost, um, I think the real sort of spiritual, it was too early for the real sort of spiritual things to start happening. Mm-hmm. And we still... We still were very much sort of modern technical humans gotcha. carrying the baggage of, of 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 all the ways we've been indoctrinated to think and perceive the world uh, with us, and and so I mean even you know it, it it it's evident in my journal entries that first night like I'm really trying to describe the actual numbers of the caribou that we're seeing, and and and, and I'm not really uh, going into a lot of detail. About my own feelings, or or what what the caribou are evoking. I mean, I'm just sort of describing the physical scene. You're being the field biologist. Yeah, you know, very very analytical and uh, uh, descriptive and almost objective. You know, like just sort of trying trying to describe it almost as an observer, mm-hmm. uh, a distant observer, rather than as a participant. I'm just curious. At that point, you finally made contact. You were able to experience how fast these animals are traveling. Uh, did that surprise, I mean, were you, as you watched them literally move, did that, uh, did, did you have wonders if you could actually maintain, how fast did they move, and did you feel you could keep up? Yeah, I mean, up to this point, before we'd seen them, the question that had been brewing in our minds, are, are, they, are they migrating yet or not? To see these thousands of animals rushing uh, and, and literally turning like the snow, uh, these snowy trails became black. I mean, sort of pounded down to to the bare earth, and so you, you're seeing these these threads of, of brown dirt across this vast white landscape, and and and, and the speed by which they're moving, um, running, you know, at times galloping. Uh, you're all of a sudden the question becomes switches to, oh my gosh, uh, certainly they're migrating, but can we keep up? And I think the thing that we were hard, I mean, we wanted to just keep going, like to pack up right there and keep going, even though we've been going 11 hours that day and just completed this incredibly difficult climb to this ridge top. And I think, you know, right there, like Leanne is sort of much more pr- pragmatic and, 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 and reasonable, I think, when it comes to uh, thinking about the long haul. And she really was sort of this moderating uh, force in, in our in our very small team in, uh, on the expedition of, of I would constantly almost be obsessed with like taking off and literally trying to to do everything the caribou were doing straight away like okay they're moving through the night let's move through the night but Leanne was much more cautious in those beginning stages and and I think that very rightly so you know she was 
thinking a lot about pacing ourselves so that we could continue to, to travel for, for months on end. That by itself becomes its own challenge. Yeah, and, and very much tension, you know, like, so you're all constantly gambling, uh, well, if, if we sleep now and the caribou continue to move, are we going to lose them forever? And that, that was a tension that played out through the whole trip. And, and as you remember from the book, I mean, it, there were significant periods of time where we had lost them and we're kind of kicking ourselves for earlier decisions we've made. And there are also points where, where there's a tension between Leanne and I, and she's, she's saying, you know, let's stop, let's rest, let's hold ourselves back. And I'm pushing in a, at one point in the trip post-calving. You know, I really had to push hard, and it was important for us to just give up absolutely everything in terms of sleep, eating, and any semblance of, of being human and comfortable uh, in order to keep up with a post-calving rush. Very, very powerful moment in the book. How, how long did it take from that point then to reach the calving areas in Anwar? Well, the, the, so that was, we first encountered the caribou at the end of the first week, and it was another five weeks uh, before we, we, we would reach the calving ground. So it's a total of one and a half months on the spring migration. And that is a story that is filled with every conceivable level of, of challenge, joy, frustration, etc. <laughs> Plus, you, um, you, uh, uh, ran into some really difficult moments, literally where your life was on the line. It, it came at many different times. I'm just curious if you could give us some examples of some of the moments where you really wondered how things were going to turn out. Yeah, I think uh, a few really stand out on the spring migration. Um, I think the, our first serious Arctic blizzard was a real uh, testing time for both the and I. I mean, we Neither of us, even in our high-altitude climbing, uh, had never experienced anything like this, where the wind uh, is literally bending the poles of the tent flat, and you're inside braced against it with 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 crystals of snow driven through, you know, the, the microscopic pores of the fabric of the tent, uh, so that it's snowing inside this tent as, as well as, as as outside, and just howling, and the, the whole tent is kind of uh, collapsing and then popping up again and collapsing again. It's, uh, it's like you're inside this, this um, Gore-Tex hyperventilating lung, and 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 we're just we're terrified. You know, there's no shelter anywhere. This is this is our this is our life around us of fabric and, and stitches. We're inspecting every seam with every gust and every stitch, just praying that that you know that the, they're not going to rip and fray and, and it very much felt like it was going to and 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 almost panicked i think in that in that first arctic storm and how how long were you in that state uh, probably for about uh close to 24 hours that mm. first time temperatures uh temperatures weren't uh terrible i think the air temperature would have been somewhere around minus 10 Fahrenheit. yeah that's but, cold though <laughs> but when wind, you're human 10 below zero with wind is terrible yeah i mean the wind would have been somewhere in the order of, you know, between 100 and 150 miles an hour. I mean, oh, my God. It was just God. unbelievable. You couldn't stand. And and then, you know, finally, in this first blizzard, what I did was, or what I decided, just like, this thing is, this tent is going to rip to shreds around us by this wind. And so I went outside and I managed to sort of carve out these snow blocks from the rock-hard uh, drifts with our... Uh, 
we had one aluminum snow shovel between us, and and create this sort of V-shaped windbreak uh, built out of these this, this rock-like snow uh, upwind of us. And as I was doing that, um, I looked up at one point, and through the, the, the sort of horizontal haze of driving snow and cloud, I see these shapes, and they're moving. And some are lying down, and some are even like grazing on these tufts of grass that are being pushed flat against the snow by the wind. And I, I, I just couldn't believe my eyes, and I, I, I dove back into the tent and said to the there's caribou outside. Mm. And, and she was just, you know, she didn't believe me, and she looks up, I'd sure enough, uh, these caribou, uh, you know, in that moment sort of became our guides towards how, that, that this was sort of, a, this was an everyday occurrence, oh. almost like it wasn't abnormal. And, and the caribou would survive, and we would survive. And somehow, you know, the, the storm didn't become less, any less intense in that moment, but somehow our, our worry really subsided, and, and, and guided by these caribou, or supported almost by these caribou that had surrounded us, uh, that we were going through this together and we would all survive. And then, and then probably the, the, the next thing that really challenged us the most was when the bears, the grizzly bears, Started to become, uh, started to come out of their dens, started to come out of hibernation in, in early May, and the landscape is still quite snowy at this point, and, and still very frozen, and and we're skiing across it, and, and you can see, you know, for tens of miles, uh, at times from from the ridge tops, uh, no trees hiding anything, and, and you would see four or five grizzly bears at a time, wandering across across this landscape, these dark sort of silhouettes cut out shapes across the white vastness. And 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 as it turned out, all of them were doing exactly what we were doing, following this caribou herd, in, 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 except they were doing it, you know, not to get to the calving grounds per se, but in the hopes of some lucking into some post-hibernation meal. And Leanne joked to me, you know, it's not long before one of these bears is going to realize we're the slowest caribou going. <laughs> and, and I, you know, I, I kind of laughed too, and, uh, I mean, we were concerned, but figured that that we would be foreign enough that none of these bears would really want to mess with us. But the, that very afternoon, one was incredibly curious and approached where we were setting up camp, and then we managed to finally sort of shoo it off with shouts and and, and, and waving our ski poles. But that night, after moving camp, because of that initial curious bear, you know, I think probably one of the moments in the entire trip where we really did consider uh, giving it all up and what we were doing was ridiculous was when this particularly old, hungry, uh, and quite small, but very thin and, and sick, sickly-looking female, a desperate bear, essentially, on the edge of starvation, uh, came in, circled us, and began, essentially it stalked us for, for one and a half miles and wouldn't leave us alone. Uh, where we were setting up camp for the second time. And, and that story and that encounter, how we finally resolved it, I think really is sort of one of the emotional... Uh, uh, high point is the wrong way to describe it, but yeah. the most emotionally charged point, you know, both in the trip and in the book, and, and lots of questions uh, bantered back and forth between Leanne and I on really how reasonable it is uh, for us to continue given that we, in fact, have been treated as prey uh, 
by one of these many animals now that are that are roaming along the caribou trail with us. Yeah, you don't want this to become the story of survival with a bear tracking you and waiting for its <laughs> most, you know, that, that we've heard those stories before. Yeah, but and, again, I guess ultimately, you know, what we decided in all our options of, 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 of aborting the trip or not, uh, well, in a way, I don't think we really did decide consciously uh, because it's such a vast uh, landscape and so remote and so difficult to land a plane in, even like even a bush plane at that time of year on skis, we would have had to travel for at least two days to even get to a place along the, the coast of the Arctic Ocean where a plane could have landed. And more li- likely than not, we would have waited a number of days more for good weather until that plane could land. And so our, our, we didn't have any immediate escape. You know, We couldn't head back to the ski lodge or hop in the car and drive home regardless of whether we just had to continue the trip or not, we would still have to survive those next four or five days with in amongst the grizzly bears. And so we decided, well, let's just keep going today and see what happens. And I think, uh, you know, just the act of moving and the rhythm of moving itself, and certainly, you know, anybody who's done a long trip has felt this. I mean, it's sort of like all your worries and concerns, they don't disappear, but I think the act of moving because that's what we've mm. evolved to do, and that's what we've done for, you know, the greater part of the million and a half years of human evolution. I think it really kind of puts all the stresses and concerns into their rightful place. And for us, uh, that did happen. So after a while, I think we came to terms with, uh, you know, the notion that to truly be caribou, to experience what they did, uh, experience on this incredible journey that they do every year, we had to come to terms with the, the, the possibility of, of dying. And certainly I think we, we talked about that before leaving on the trip, but now we're really confronted with it in sort of a living, furry, uh, you know, uh, well-clawed, toothed animal that had really come in and, and, and challenged our sense of, 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 of mortality. And, and I think at that point in the trip we did really accept that we could die on this journey, and and that was a really important step to take to, to to get to, I think, the sort of mental state of being caribou. One of the aspects, uh, as well, then, is the fact that you would have to um, have your uh, resupplies uh, airdropped in, and you had a choice at that point. You could say enough. You know, at certain points, you were running out of food. You're running low on food, and you'd have to make decisions to bring in the food. Give us a sense of how that would happen. Well, uh, normally, you know, when we had, say, two or three days of food left in our packs, we would start to say, okay, um, given our current trajectory and everything, where would be a reasonable place to receive a food drop? And if it's going to be dropped in the air, you want us to find an open place and hopefully with some soft snow, not too many rocks, so that that the, the, the things that are being thrown on the plane and, you know, the plane would be traveling at an airspeed of somewhere around 60 miles an hour. So, and, and dropping from a few hundred feet up, you're, you're really quite worried about you know, all these uh, bags of rice and stuff breaking open on the tundra. <laughs> yeah. and, mm. and so that's one consideration. Another thing, you know, we're, we were recording this journey as well uh, through still photographs and through film. And so at any opportunity, we, we wanted to send that film out so that it wouldn't be lost or damaged and also it would just add up to a fair bit of weight over time. 
And so any any opportunity to actually land a plane when it was on a frozen lake uh, in winter um, or or an open lake in summer, we would try to capitalize on those opportunities. So, you, you know, we were trying to stay with caribou, and yet we found ourselves every couple of weeks kind of pulled back to our dependencies as modern humans in having support from the outside world. And and it was an interesting dynamic that started to happen as the journey unfolded is that we would we would have these incredible moments and even prolonged moments in, in terms of weeks of traveling and being in amongst the herd. And then we would decide, okay, we need food. We're going to try to receive it at this lake. And almost every single time we would make that decision commit to it, make the phone call to the pilot, give them our location, and then the weather would close in, and we would spend three, four, at one point even six days waiting. And meanwhile, the caribou have moved on. We're losing them. And so it was this tension between sort of our dependence on the outside world um, undermining our ability to really be a part of this, of this, of this caribou migration, and then sort of trying to, once we did receive the food drop, some, at one point, anyway, near the end of the trip, you know, on the, uh, 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 pretty much starving and having to trap ground squirrels and things to survive uh, as we're waiting for it, then trying to sort of regain our place in amongst the migration, and, and, and that sort of became this, this back-and-forth dynamic that played out during the entire journey. I'm just curious, uh, from a sort of a technical perspective here, if you had to... Uh, relay your location, would you rely on GPS and map, I, I suppose, is how you were kind of tracking through through your journey? Yes. Yeah, it was a combination of things. Yeah, so we carried a small uh, GPS uh, receiver. And, at, you know, uh, at times that actually came in handy. Like, I've never used one or had felt the need to use one before, but uh, when you get into uh, some of the open tundra landscapes, where the features are very uniform and indistinct, and then you layer you know, coastal fog or uh, blizzard conditions on top of that to, to travel and navigate through that to uh, some of these set locations for receiving food drops or to try to return to your last point where you've been amongst caribou. You know, those tools definitely help. And, and that, you know, sort of a side note on, on the modern tools, this trip, probably wouldn't have been possible to do in the style that we did it, say, five years ago even. Satellite phones uh, were these big, heavy briefcase uh, objects until you know, just a few years ago. Now they're the size of a, a portable cordless phone that you have in your, in your house. And even the, the recharging technology, you know, to a small, flexible, very robust solar panel, nickel-metal hydride batteries instead of nickel-cadmium, uh, you know, are, are much lighter. Just all these little details of technology that really enabled us to do this trip, just two people, no film crew, carrying everything uh, that we would need to, to not only do the trip but film it on our backs. I don't think that opportunity or technical opportunity existed um, until, you know, a very short time ago. And yet, in terms of following caribou, allowing ourselves to be steered by their movements and migration is a very old human activity. I mean, that, that is one of the really neat things about the trip is when we did return to Old Crow, the Gwich'in native village at the end of the trip, the way we talked and the stories we told had elders weeping 
because of how much it reminded them of the very language and sort of visual images that, that their parents and grandparents' stories had evoked of when they had followed the caribou, uh, not, not necessarily to get to their calving ground, but simply to eat and survive. Mm. You became indigenous. At indigenous, what point? But still, uh, you know, this is kind of the, the ironic thing, still heavily dependent on a modern technology to do that. Good point. Good point. It sounds as if somewhere in this realm you were becoming caribou. That is to say that your spirit and your, your purpose and your will uh, became truly locked in with that migrating herd. Uh, was there a moment where you began to sense the first sense of being caribou? Uh, a, a couple of things, I guess, to answer that question. And to me, incidentally, and, and, and yeah, I just let the listener know that you know, I'm trained as a scientist to see the world rationally in these sort of discrete parcels and, 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 and sort of have an analytically trained mind. But the transformation that I felt uh, happened during this journey, I think, is, is and the spiritual transformation is one of the most exciting parts of the trip. And, and I guess, you know, on any long journey, what happened is, is that the layers of your old self uh, and, and, and sort of your, I guess, almost your fabricated self uh, start to fall away like layers of an onion. And, and, and this started to happen to Leanne and I, and we all know kind of the, sometimes you're hiking along or skiing along, and this old song might pop into your mind, for instance, uh, and the lyrics just won't leave, you know, like they rattle around in your head, and they rattle around in your head, sometimes it takes days. And this started to happen to Leanne uh, and I after a couple of weeks, after we sort of started to settle into the rhythm of falling caribou and give way to this, this whole notion of surrendering to to all their movements and let the caribou guide us rather than our preconceptions guide us uh, of, of having destinations and goals. But uh, as our minds sort of started to relax and open up to that, uh, these old song lyrics, the, the old phone numbers, all this sort of mental clutter, like these useless facts and figures that we all, and, and jingles that we carry around in our heads, all those began to fall away. And in the lack, you know, in the absence of billboards and advertisements, radios blaring and, you know, uh, checking email and all the things that we kind of are, are distracted by in modern society. Uh, in the absence of those sort of filling that void or filling that space that it was created as we were shedding all these other um, memories, I think we really began to unearth and uncover uh, sort of our elemental self. And, and a lot of the, that elemental self, I think, is in the acuity of the senses. So we, we felt our senses becoming much sharper in terms of uh, vision, smell, uh, hearing. And as the trip went on, uh, uh, also just sort of almost like a sixth sense um, of, of knowing. And the sixth sense, I think, is uh, I describe it as something uh, uh, as thrumming in the book, and, and thrumming uh, is the sound that the caribou would make when they were together in, in large groups, but it isn't really a sound, it's more like a rumbling or a vibration, I, th I think it, in the reading I've done since on whale song and other modes of, of, of animal communication, a lot of it is sort of infrasonic on the lower end, or beyond the lower end of human 
hearing. And yet, as as Leanne and I sort of became sort of much more pure and much less distracted and much more focused, this sound that I had initially heard a little bit or felt um, sort of rumbling in the chest. And it's not, I'm not talking about the drumming of hooves on the tundra here. I'm talking about something else, almost like a, a humming, an energetic hum that comes up through your feet. Uh, I'd felt it a few times on the spring migration, but it wasn't until after the calving ground that we started to follow the caribou uh, in their post-calving wanderings uh, that we really started to tap into it, not just as... And it started to supersede, actually, and replace conventional methods of tracking the caribou where, you know, we wouldn't look so much at ground signs in terms of hoof prints and, and fecal pellets that had been left behind on where we would find caribou next. But this this sound, we would wake up from a nap and this 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 humming, we would sort of cock our heads and look at each other and, you know, try to articulate, yeah, it's coming from somewhere over there. And we would point sort of obliquely to some ridge, and, and we would pack up and let's just start heading in that direction, and and a few hours later, we'd top over that ridge, and sure enough, uh, there's a large group of caribou that had been around us when we'd fallen asleep, and, and that's where they'd moved to. So this, this, this you know, we, we uncovered, in our attempt to become caribou, I think, or, or in our attempt to, to, you know, to be caribou. We uncovered, I think, through the elemental sense of what it is to be human. Like we, we were able to tap into some of our biological potential, our wild potential, our instinctual potential that has become inundated, covered, and forgotten. I think in the modern world, and that really became exciting to me. You know, to 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 be steered by uh, senses and knowledge uh, in a realm and dimension that I'd never accessed before. And, and as we went all along in the trip, and we became more sleep-deprived and, and, and more and more har- hungry and starved and thirsty and muddled up by what was day and night as we're trying to follow caribou through, through you know, uh, all, all periods of daytime and, and nighttime. Uh, we started to have, and, and you're literally feeling almost kind of dizzy at times, um, from the state of exhaustion, and it was all—I guess—I kind of likened it almost to like a a, sh- uh, a shaman sort of trying to will themselves or work themselves through dance and and, and fasting and and song into a whole other realm of consciousness. Well, we we didn't consciously try to do that, but the caribou had kind of sent us on that journey that became that dance, and and much like a shaman sort of transcends into different level of consciousness and accesses uh, a dream world, which can inform them of, of, of events in the future. That started to happen to us as well, where our dreams you know, really started to articulate scenes and dramas that would unfold hours later. And so the thrumming, our dreams, and these visions started to become the, the mode by which we would make decisions and inform our movements as we became closer and closer to tapping to the very energy that sends this great herd coursing across the tundra uh, for thousands of miles every year. Being Caribou with Karsten Hoyer continues after a short break. 
Welcome back to the Wild Side News. And now, Sydney Wildsmith. So what does being caribou mean? We find out as Karsten and Leanne continue onward. It's calving season in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, where the porcupine herd of caribou have journeyed for over 27,000 years. Will their plans and the enduring struggle bring them to the site in time? Could it be that this wild adventure may actually succeed? We find out as your Voice of the Earth continues with this special edition of the Wild Side News. So our conversation continues with Karsten Hoyer, the author of Being Caribou and his adventure with his wife Leanne, as they were becoming literally one, a human and a connection with a caribou, to tell us the, the story of the, the, the larger story of what it really is to be caribou. And so I'd like to continue. Karsten, welcome back. Thanks, Sydney. Well, I think as... Listeners can tell there's a lot to this book, <laughs> and amazingly enough, uh, the book is a is a fabulous uh, fabulous read, and we're not even to the to to the calving grounds in Anwar. Let's move ahead now and uh, discuss what began to happen because you you basically it was a, it was one step after another the journey continued week you know day after day, week after week, and ultimately. You became one with this this migrating herd, and let's talk now about heading into the the calving grounds in Anwar and what that meant to you. Well, the, the six weeks into the journey, um, we arrived into the calving grounds, and, and you know, up to that point, we'd be going through tundra hills, through uh, the Yukon Mountains, the the Richardson Range, the Barren Range, the British Mountains of the Yukon, and 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 starting to parallel the Arctic Ocean, so the Arctic Ocean would be uh, 20 miles off to our right side as we're heading west, so off to the north. And really at that time of year, uh, continuing to be completely frozen, so there's a white lens of ice kind of reaching off. And then finally, after six weeks, we kind of dropped out of all those chains of mountains and came out onto this 20-mile-wide this uh, patch of, of, of tundra uh, still very much snow covered. Uh, the, the the calving grounds uh, hemmed in on on the south side by the highest mountains we'd seen yet, uh, eight thousand nine thousand foot peaks in the Brooks Range of Alaska, and and on the north uh, hemmed by the the coastal ice of the Arctic Ocean. And so it's a very narrow area, um, and it's a very special area from the standpoint of the caribou. Uh, and and over the course of the next ten days, we would we would sort of experience all the reasons why they go to that particular place. But the first thing I think before we even could do that, we had to come to terms with how their behavior had so uh, had, had shifted to such an extreme 
during the course of the uh, spring migration, they were relatively accepting of our presence so long as we were one or two or three hundred yards away. We could pass them, and certainly when we were in the tent especially, they would pass us sometimes within uh, a dozen yards. But all that really changed uh, quite significantly when we arrived on the calving ground and these animals that had been very accepting of us as travel companions all of a sudden became very skittish and sensitive to the extent that we couldn't even step out of the tent and stand up if the caribou was 500 yards away without it fleeing. And I think, you know, we can all kind of relate and understand this if, if, if we've had kids or uh, if we've had friends or family who've had kids in, in how uh, you know a, a pregnant human mother gets as she nears uh, the time of birth. Uh, incredibly sensitive, just wants to have quiet, wants to be focused, doesn't want to be disturbed, and wants to have the opportunity to sort of go into themselves to have to, to go get through this difficult process of birthing. And Leanne and I were soon realized that heck, after weeks of traveling, now we can't literally move a step. We have to stay inside this tent. Because that tent acted like a blind. So long as we stayed inside, the tent, the caribou weren't disturbed. And so, you know, this tent, and it's tiny, by the way, it's this mountaineering tent, and it's, it's four feet wide by six feet long and about three and a half feet high at its highest point. And so Leanne and I are kind of wedged in there uh, against one another, and now all of a sudden we've become hostages in this tent. So up to then it it, it basically been our bedroom, but now it's it's become our living room, uh, our, our 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 camera room, uh, and I hate to say it, but our bathroom as well. <laughs> we couldn't even step outside to relieve ourselves. Well, there's a there's a moment in the book which is one of my favorites, and also I think in terms of making a point of the significance of keeping these areas free from development of any sort where you guys are stuck in the tent and uh, nature calls and there's a real problem. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, we're, we're kind of perplexed, if you will, how oil companies can talk about going to this very place and literally, you know, that the, the caribou had led us to the very heart of their calving ground, their preferred calving ground. And it's also the heart of this known oil reserve that exists underneath. And so it's a direct conflict, a direct confrontation between these two uh, types of use. And, and Leanne and I really kind of were left scratching our heads uh, thinking, you know, how can the oil companies say, as they have said, um, you know, you can, that you could come in and extract this oil uh, without having an effect on this caribou herd when two small campers who have literally skied and walked there can't get out of their tent uh, to go to the bathroom without, you know, sort of setting off these these stampedes that we feared would, would lead to abortions or abandon, abandonment of, of newborn and that, that you know, for the first few hours, relatively uh, helpless calves. And, and so we were really, you know, we were experiencing all that firsthand and and I really tried to sort of set off on this trip with an open mind and, and to be open to uh, all possibilities and all scenarios of, of development or not. And, and, but, you know, to, and a lot of people say, well, could it work? Could it coexist? And, 
I think, you know, we didn't, we didn't have to do any science. I mean, all the science is out there that points of all possible places this is the worst you could ever develop in their, ra- in their entire huge range. Um, but we, we experienced that elementally and anecdotally in a more convincing manner than any scientific report could do um, in, in the fact that we literally we, we became hostages in our own tent. Describe the, uh, the setting uh, of this area, because it's very different than than the areas that you had been traversing. Yeah, so 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 the the this coastal plain, it's almost like a prairie-like landscape where these rivers that had been uh, that are very confined and take these twisting, uh, uh, roiling courses through canyons and the mountains spill out and spread in these sort of vast gravel plains, and and and. One of the big reasons the caribou gather there, well, there's three actually. The, the first one is is that the wolves, and, and there are many wolf chases that, that I describe in the book and, and a few that appear in the film as well, the wolves that had sort of tracked the migration and, and harassed the caribou uh, for the first few weeks, uh, they also are, are, are having their young, and so they've had to stop during the migration uh, and 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 find den sites to raise their young. So they, the caribou, and this is part of the big sort of adaptation of migration for for a lot of, of, of uh, hoofed animals, is to leave their predators behind. Wow, that's and interesting. These, these predator refuges. So, so all of a sudden you have no wolves, and for reasons that biologists still don't understand, very, very low density of grizzly bears. So, you know, although Leanne and I had seen uh, you know, up to four or five grizzly bears in the same day working our way through the foothills uh, of the mountains. Once we are on the coastal plain for 10 days, we only saw one grizzly bear. And finally, um, you know, now we're starting to get into early June, and as we were working our way through the last uh, week in the mountains, we're sort of snow patch, hopscotching uh, uh, along these drifts and uh, drifted in creek beds and, and and ice shelves of creeks and so on to keep our skis on with long bouts of walking across um, snow-free ground between. Uh, and, and, and in the mountains, it was harder. It's actually a little bit warmer because it's not as close to the ice of the Arctic Ocean. But this coastal plain, uh, it's a little bit cooler, and that might sound like uh, a disadvantage, uh, for for newborn cows, but in fact it's an advantage because with warmth in the Arctic and the arrival of, of, of spring and summer come bugs, and bugs in, in, in numbers and intensities that you know, no one can really relate to unless they have experienced it firsthand. It's, it's nothing like the worst. It, it, it's just an order of magnitude greater than the worst possible day you could imagine in the worst bug-infested place in, in southern Canada or the state. And and it's not just mosquitoes I'm talking about. It's, it's warble flies, which are a type of sort of house-sized fly that burrow underneath the the hide of the caribou and lay their eggs. Uh, very painful for the caribou. And then bot flies, which again uh, sort of wasp-like looking fly that goes up the caribou noses and burrows literally into their heads and the lar- larvae uh, 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 can infect their brains. And and and, and these caribou will do anything, as we experienced later in the trip, to avoid being harassed by these, these insects. And, 
what the calving grounds provide in being cooler from the Arctic Ocean is a delay in the onset of those insects. So that while the insects are already starting to come out in the foothills and the warmer mountains, the next Arctic Ocean is delayed. And so for the first two weeks of life, these calves are spared uh, the harassment of, of, of these insects. It's extraordinary the way it all fits together. It, it's just beautiful, you know, like to see all the cogs in the machinery of nature uh, interlocking and, and revolving firsthand, you know, right from the timing of when the caribou left their winter range, when the sun was warming the snow and burning off the, the, the snow so they could access their forage in the, in the windswept mountains, right to all the things that line up that make these calving grounds worth all the effort and energy to migrate to. Uh, to experience that firsthand uh, was just amazing. So you you literally were camping amongst the birthing uh, caribou. Uh, yeah. What was that like to to witness that? Um, the 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 Gwich'in people. Uh, one of the things that kind of came up uh, before we left was the fact that nobody really should go to the calving grounds. It's taboo in Gwich'in culture to visit the calving grounds because it's, it's that sacred of a place. Uh, their word for the calving grounds in English translates to the sacred place where life begins. And, and you know, Leanne and I kind of, I think we rationalized and, and justified it all to ourselves in, in that we were going to try to bring this story to a large amount of people and, and, and really to, to give a voice to this caribou herd. It was necessary for us to go to this place where really people shouldn't even be visiting. And, uh, and the, but I think, you know, as soon as we were there and as soon as we were kind of surrounded and as soon as we are watching calves literally being born meters from the tent and, and those, those first few moments where the, the, the cow turns around and the umbilical cord is still hanging out of her, her hind end and she's licking this calf clear of the mucus and immediately nudging it to its feet and the calf is, is sort of sh- sh- struggling onto wobbling legs and and, and trying to support itself, almost like sort of splaying out these, these huge legs, which are completely disproportionate to its tiny body and head, and trying to nurse from its mother, and taking the first few steps in, in just a few minutes, and walking within the first hour, and running within the first day, and, and just seeing this calf sort of explore life and its surroundings for the first time, but also explore the whole notion of of being tied and bonded to its mother as it as it as it starts to venture out uh, more widely into the world to to watch that bond develop, it was really all sacred. Uh, uh, just experiencing it and and initially for Leanne and I it was very hard to be cramped up and cooped up in this tiny tent after moving, you know, for 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 almost fifty days every day. It was almost like it had be to, to switch rhythms so dramatically was so difficult for us. But as soon as that started to happen around us, all that sort of restlessness inside of our bodies just vanished. And we became immersed in this incredible, almost trance-like state of watching uh, all this transpiring around us, of cows giving birth. Not only that, but all the, all the birds starting to arrive. Over 150 different species of birds come to this very place uh, to, to nest and and breed and and uh, and give birth to their young, and so we would we would watch all the different kinds of birds: Lapland longspurs, white-crowned sparrows, and 
and and the Canada geese, the snow geese, the uh, long-tailed Jaegers, the the king eider ducks, the 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 uh, long-tailed ducks, and watch them all arrive from seven different continents and start to go through all their courtship rituals and and gathering materials for their nests and then giving birth to their young. It was just all of a sudden we'd been so preoccupied with travel and all of a sudden we were plunked down in one place and just overwhelmed with all the details that you'll only pick up, I think, if you are sitting in one place. And we were sort of forced to do that initially, but it didn't feel forced after just the first few days. There was so much going on and life was so rich in all that was happening around us. We didn't need to move anywhere. Everything had sort of moved and surrounded us. So how long did you stay in the in the uh, that area, the, the calving area? How long did they stay? Because, after all, you were following them. Exactly. So, again, that was all dictated by them. And, and it, was, it, it was, you know, in, in, in the uh, timeline of the whole trip, being five months, it was a very short time. It was only ten days. Uh, it was a time just packed. It was ten days packed with 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 uh, events uh, unfolding, and then almost like a switch had been thrown after ten days, and these calves uh, had all been born now, and most of them were moving very well now. You know, I mean, the, the precociousness of these calves was just unbelievable to witness firsthand. And in fact, biologists have tracked. Newborn calves, two weeks old, traveling sixty miles in a day. Mm. Uh, so they're they're built and, and and have evolved to travel for sure. And and this this sort of this, this incredible ten day period of of all the cows uh, staying in the same place, and all the calves being born, and this bond forming without the stress of having to move switched. Uh, within the span of one 24-hour period, and all of a sudden, they just all the caribou were gone. And and what it is that sort of triggers this this incredible shift yet again is that sort of um, the knowledge or 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 the the signs and signals again that Leanne and I uh, weren't quite tapped into, but the caribou certainly were that the bugs are going to emerge pretty soon. And when when the bugs do emerge, you do not want to be out on the coastal plain, you know, a fairly uh, wet, marshy area where once that water that was all ice when we first arrived, it can't percolate through the ground because it's all permafrost underneath. And so it's all the standing water, perfect breeding ground for a lot of insects. And so the caribou uh, headed back into the, the mountains. And it's a rush into the mountains. And what they're doing now is they're switching to a whole different strategy, which is to uh, position themselves in basins where there will be fairly good forage uh, in the form of, of grasses and willows and, and other herbs, uh, but within very close striking distance of high ridges where when the wind dies, because the wind really, now it's going to, the wind is what's going to drive everything for their movement when the bugs are out. When the wind dies, and the bugs start to swarm, they can go up in elevation and try to farm the wind in the heights of, of, of the ridgetops um, when, when it becomes stagnant down below. Mm, that becomes an extraordinary story. And I, 
in my own mind, I'm imagining being a, a, a newly born caribou and trying to figure out what this is all about, being part of this massive uh, herd, and then learning what, follow, what, what happens at birth, and this becomes the uh, play of life that they're going to have to go through each season. It's a learning process for them. And you create this image of, of life for the caribou then following the birthing, where it is truly following the winds. And it yeah, also and it, that helps to define, quite honestly, their movements from that point, that it's an unpredictable thing. And discuss that a bit. That's so fascinating. Well, up to that point, I guess Leanne and I, and we had to do this at one point in the spring migration. We always knew that, you know what, if we lose the caribou, we can always sort of take the default average migratory route and hopefully hook up with them in the calving grounds. And and, and we had to do that over the course of a, a two-week period when we did lose them for an extended time during the spring migration. Unfortunately, we hooked up with them again long before we reached the calving grounds. But, but this sort of new stress pressure uh, presented itself after calving because the movements become so varied and unpredictable between years and, and, and there isn't sort of this focused place that they're going to get to for the next few months, that if we lost them, chances are we would lose them for good. And and, and so now we're sort of presented with this, this uh, incredible pressure and desire to stay as closely uh, with them as possible. And this really was the period when we pushed ourselves uh, to extents that, you know, I never thought were humanly possible in terms of, uh, no sleep, uh, very little food, and just piling on the miles for for uh, 22 hours out of out of 24. And and this was a time when uh, uh, the earlier sort of uh, shamanistic um, ritual of, of of working yourself into a different dimension of consciousness really start, started to take hold. And 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 and. And at times, uh, again, you know, we would come, we would wake up from an hour-long nap, and the caribou that had surrounded us would be gone and vanished. And and it was so difficult to sort of, there was no snow anymore to track them, no no snow trenches, and and even in places depending on the ground, uh, it became difficult to track. Uh, even though it was thousands and thousands of animals, they had left very little sign if the ground was particularly hard. Um, and, and and this became the time when we we almost well we did we accessed this other other way of knowing and, and that was informed through through the the thrumming uh, through our visions and through our dreams and it kind of came I think at a, at a point where we, we had been chasing the herd and we were hoping to catch them after having lost them for three or four days and we were we were really expecting to come across them in this one big basin, and what we got there was just this totally confusing uh, mixed messages of, of, of trails heading off in all directions, so we had no idea which one to fall, where to head, and, and I kind of found myself sitting in that basin kind of laughing because what we were seeing was sort of the calligraphy of, 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 of the past few days of wind. Uh, shift in direction of wind and, and sort of the fruitlessness of, of everything we were attempting to do really kind of hit home in that moment where we were trying to track the shifting nature of these shifting bugs and these shifting uh, winds uh, of, of days before. And, 
and I, I think that night, Leanna, I just kind of almost sort of, we physically and mentally collapsed. We just said, this, this is impossible. We can't do it. And it was almost like we, we stopped taking ourselves so seriously. And, and from that point on in the trip, we seemed to sort of tap into, uh, uh, it was like that last bit of us that needed to open, that last bit of us that take ourselves so seriously uh, had opened up. And once we left that behind, uh, this this thrumming and the visions and dreams really kind of stepped in as the, as the major method by which we navigated uh, from then on during the trip. Wow. Was this the point where you began to really sense being caribou? I mean, I'm sure it happened many times, but how does this moment relate to your, your whole sense of being caribou? Well, what being caribou means, I think, uh, is is what a lot of us in modern society are sort of, you know, going to, whether it's uh, Buddhist temples or yoga ashrams or or through meditation. It's, it's you know, we're tr- a lot of us are trying to sort of, we're in this perpetual struggle to regain balance in what seems to be very unbalanced lives. And, and, you know, it's almost sort of become cliche where people, uh, a lot of these, these teachings, I guess, are encouraging us to live in the moment. And and really, being caribou, uh, when it comes right down to it, is all about living in the moment. It's all about acceptance. And it's all about surrendering to the flow of things rather than forcing things to happen. And rather than being fixated on outcomes, just just being open to absolutely taking any direction uh, and any pace that outside forces, you know, whether it's wind, snow conditions, wolves, presence of grizzly bears, uh, are, are pointing towards taking. And not sort of trying to go against the grain and not trying to force things. And and for Leanne and I, that, that really took a long time for us uh, and months. Uh, and and it was everything that happened along the way that really kind of it's almost like it wasn't a conscious decision it was a decision or it was it happened because it, we kind of had all our teachings of how to live beaten out of us it had been beaten out of us by the you know the sheer number of miles that we'd had to travel the number of mountain ranges we'd had to cross the number of rivers we had to wade and swim um, and the number of bears that we'd we we had encountered and sort of had to come to terms with uh, threatening us, uh, and and the number of blizzards we'd had to endure, and then the, the swarms of bugs as well, and and what it has all taught us, I think, over the many months, and what, what what was so difficult to accept, and I think this is something that we have such difficulty in accepting in in, in modern society, and it's and it's what I think a lot of uh, political manipulation takes advantage of is is that in truth there is no such thing as security. And you know, the caribou the caribou live with that knowledge and they live in ways that accept that. And 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 it took us a long, long time to accept that. And I think in accepting it, you know, accepting that that death could be around the next corner, and accepting that inconvenience uh, was part of uh, of living in accepting that, you know, sacrifice of our own personal uh, desires sometimes was necessary for, for greater spiritual and mental rewards 
those were all steps that we took along the way towards the path, uh, the path of being caribou. And and it, and it, and and what they allowed us to access um, was this this incredibly instinctual, uh, elemental, very natural uh, dimension of knowing uh, informed through our dreams. Like we, after a while, we we had no worries about where we were going to go, what we were going to do, uh, whether we would be safe or not. We just were. We were just being. And and it was almost like the caribou did recognize that as well as well. And there's one particular scene I think that for, for me is the sort of crescendo of the trip of being caribou. And I'm talking about the mental and spiritual journey now, where for the first time all trip, you know, we're not just following caribou, but caribou are following us. And Leanne and I are walking, and 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 the caribou literally. There's the whole group of bulls that are passing me within such close proximity that if I reach out my arms as I'm walking, I could touch them. And, you know, and, and all the old signs of them kind of being a little bit nervous or snorting, all those things have passed, and they're passing me like I'm one of them. And it was almost as if they recognized my very gait, my very movements, and the way I move my limbs, uh, that I had sort of transcended that modern conventional way of being human and had gone back to a more traditional way of being, which was probably part human, uh, part caribou, and, and part something else. It was at that moment in the book that it there was an eye contact and a communication between you and particularly some, some males where I suddenly felt as if uh, that moment had arrived in, maximally for me personally and in my journey with you. It was a powerful moment, like Bravo. <laughs> you know. Well, all good journeys come to an end, and this one did too. Give us a sense of how it was that you finally decided to to uh, uh, end the journey. Well, in a way, um, you know, despite all my talk about about being caribou and and and, and leaving the modern conventional sense of being human behind, it was kind of the, the physical limitations of being human that finally forced us to end the journey. And it was quite ironic because uh, this is into early August now, which is, is late summer, fall, uh, by Arctic standards. And the, and the shift of seasons is quite uh, dramatic in the Arctic. So all of a sudden we're starting to get snowstorms, the weather's cooling down. Leanne and I found ourselves uh, uh, unable to recover from very simple things like you know, being soaked through by sleet. Uh, we, we just could, couldn't rewarm ourselves very easily anymore. It became very apparent that, that we had exhausted absolutely every last ounce of, of reserve we had left, and, and we had no margin of error anymore. Uh, like if anything would have happened, we would have messed up on a river crossing, or if another bear would have come in and challenged us, I don't think we would have had the, the energy reserves to respond in the, in the proper way. So we as difficult as it was, and because of this flow we'd become a part of with the caribou, we had to make the decision to, to to start heading back ourselves, to start heading south, to start the fall migration without the caribou, essentially. And so we had started heading to Old Crow, and, and a really wonderful thing happened then. It, and it, you know, it wasn't it, by this point in the in the annual caribou migration, 
they're really spread out. Um, the bugs have died off now with the first hard frost, and really they're free to feed uh, at their own free will for the first time since we started with them on the entire journey. And there's no place they necessarily have to get to, uh, and there's nothing pushing them around except for the odd wolf and bear passing through. And so they're quite dispersed. It, it wasn't sort of the big throngs of the herd that we've been a part of earlier in the in the trip, but as we started making our way south, we found ourselves actually accompanied and followed by small groups of caribou for the for the three and a half weeks that it took us to get back to Old Crow. And so right to the last few miles of, of getting back into the village of Old Crow, um, we're, we're, we're witnessing you know, small bands of, of caribou uh, swimming the, the Porcupine River uh, in front and behind us. And so it, it really was a sort of accompaniment, almost as if they didn't quite want to finish telling us their story in the knowledge that, that we would uh, hopefully continue and share that story with others when we got back. And in fact, that's what we decided to do, as difficult as it was once we finished the journey and, and got to Old Crow uh, and spent time with Randall and, and some of the other friends that we'd made there for a week, is Leanne and I kind of looked at each other, and certainly you know, the, the book project and the film project were in the forefront of our minds and trying to get this out, this story out, and, and to influence and uh, as many people as possible while the issue is still being debated about whether or not to, to drill in the cabin grounds. But we, we almost, we wanted to do something even more immediate. Like it, That didn't seem to be enough and it wouldn't be realized fast enough for our liking at that time. We were just so passionate and so enthralled and excited by everything we'd learned and everything the caribou shared with us. We felt it was really important to go directly to the place uh, where all the decisions about the future were going to be made. Uh, Washington, D.C. So in, in probably, you know, a, a journey that was uh, tougher and crazier than anything we'd done yet, we got on a plane in Old Crow and through a series of seven stops in uh, airports of increasing size and, and intensity of, of, of human activity, we made our, our, our way directly from Old Crow to Washington, D.C. Mm. And that was, I mean, to... to Reimmerse ourselves in human society. We knew it was going to be difficult, no matter how we did it. And certainly, a week in Old Crow. I mean, even that was difficult in terms of being inside uh, heated houses, to be separated from the outside world, to have the inundation of satellite TV and and sort of the chatter of you know the latest Hollywood movies, bantering around the street alongside uh, the chatter about caribou. Like we just felt like every moment and step that we took sort of back to our old lives from the ones we'd experienced with the caribou was slowly cutting us off from this uh, incredible way of being that we'd experienced with them and wanted to continue to nurture and continue to explore. But what was happening was it was being cut off, and, and, and the more time we sort of spent sleeping in beds and in comfort and, and, and separated, the, the less we started, to, the less we had dreams, visions, and Finally, you know, by the time we got to Washington, D.C., and in the shock of suddenly being in subway stations and, and, and helicopters flying overhead and their continual surveillance and security guards outside every building and people talking on their ear mics, on their cell phones, to people that 
you know, no one can see, and everybody, you know, looking ahead of, and not not even making eye contact. Like it just all those things kind of eroded away uh, everything that had taken so long to to grow within us, and or not even really eroded away, but began to bury it again. And to the extent that I think the last wild act that either Leanne and I really did was this sort of involuntary act uh, on the way of walking to Capitol Hill from the hotel where we were staying and coming across a vacant lot with some freshly churned dirt in it and and without even realizing it, walking over there searching for caribou tracks. Hmm. I mean, that's, that's the sort of part of the mental state we were still in. That's how fresh and vulnerable and sensitive we still were. Uh, and yet we'd sort of been dropped and plopped into this completely foreign world to anything we'd, we'd experienced uh, for the last five months. And that was, we knew that was going to be difficult. We knew it was kind of crazy, but it was really important for us to do that and to experience it because we wanted to witness for ourselves uh, the, the, not only the geographical distance, but also the ideological distance that exists between this caribou herd and all that they stand for and, and, and the place of power, the, uh, the center of political power, where all the decisions about their future are being made. And that disconnection, I think, is something that we really wanted to experience and articulate firsthand. I truly believe that this last uh, hour and something is a moment in history for humankind that, strangely enough, the capacity to bring the new technologies and all the new gear and things and put them on humans and allow them to become caribou is something that, as you said, could not have been done before. But it's critical at this time. And in that sense, you've become 21st century shamans. Absolutely. And therefore, I feel you have earned the right to give an informed opinion about Anwar and its future. And I want to give you that opportunity. Thanks, Sydney. And, and I think you know, it's almost like we don't have the language at our disposal to sort of talk about this anymore to some extent, to talk about what really is at stake in this whole issue of the Arctic Refuge. You know, our language is, it's the language of numbers, it's the language of science, it's the language that I was brought up in, uh, uh, that has structured, structured my life. And, 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 but when we were out with this caribou herd, you know, that language sort of got silenced over time, and a whole other language started to come out, a whole other way of, of knowing and being. And when Leanne and I walked into the offices of various senators and and members of Congress, and and spoke, you know, with a few of them, and mostly with their aides, though, uh, in meetings that uh, were hurried, uh, scheduled, and one of dozens that they were having with various lobbyists who were crammed in all their waiting rooms, you know, from everything to uh, the American Automakers Association to Focus on the Family to the whole host and myriad of of interest that are out there. And here were two Canadians trying to articulate uh, what had happened on this five-month journey with the caribou. Uh, it, it was really hard to sort of bridge that 
ideological distance, I think, in those five to ten minutes that we were allotted in each of those meetings. Uh, to the extent that, and we took pictures in, and, and, and we really sort of tried to strategize on how we should do it. But ultimately, I think, you know, the, and I appreciated the bluntness of one particular aide uh, uh, when she said, you know, that it's an amazing journey, it's an amazing story, but the fact of the matter is, is what our constituencies, what our constituents really care about, and what's going to get us voted back into office is, when it comes to this issue, is cheap gas. And I think right then and there, Leanne and I really understood and realized, you know, despite how important it has been for us to go to Washington, D.C. so soon after the trip, our role wasn't to go in and, and talk to those people in those offices in that center of power. Uh, our role wasn't to try to work from the top down. It really was to share this story of the caribou with those constituents, with those very people, those very citizens who are communicating that, that what's really important to them is cheap gas. Because the cost of gas isn't just in dollars, I guess, is, is the one thing that we're trying to articulate. The cost of our lives isn't just in, in, in the ledger of our bank accounts and our, and our monthly credit card statements. You know, the, the, the cost of our lives and the lives we live and, and the gas we pump into our tanks every time we pull up to a service station is being borne by other things on this planet, things that you know, aren't just out there in the distant uh, animals that mean nothing to us, but they're the very source and root of who we are underneath all the technology and all the, the, the chatter of modern concerns and false premises of, 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 of security and uh, that, that we currently structure our lives around. And, and, and so we, we decided we really need to work from the bottom up and share this story through the film, through the book, through conversations like I'm having with you today, uh, to tell the story of the caribou so that when people uh, hear about this issue, that they think about more than, than, than gas, that they think about more than things like domestic energy security, and, that they, and they think about this very caribou herd that holds the potential to teach us so much about ourselves, so much about the richness and importance, I guess, of, of being human. And I guess ultimately, you know, if, if I had to kind of summarize the trip, um, it, it, we, we called it being caribou, and certainly that was kind of our goal during the course of the journey is to, uh, is to come closer to what it is to be one of these wild animals and, and understanding what it is to, to, to migrate with them. But I, in, the, in the end, what I realized is that although we, we left with this desire to learn more about the wildlife, in the end, uh, what, what, what came out of the trip was that the wildlife taught us so much more uh, about ourselves. And so it was a, it was a trip about uh, learning to become caribou. Uh, but in the end, I think it really was a trip that, that made us realize what it means to be human. I believe fully with you that the next role for science is to embrace that communication from the the wild back to us, which we've lost. And I believe that you have you have uh, 
created even in this conversation and in all of your work a truly historic record of that of that uh, the science of spirit and i encourage people as you say if we go to the the uh, towers of power i don't know that that's where these changes will come will come from and therefore i encourage all listeners to pass on this story through the wild side news and the voice of the earth here because it's important for us to hear this story and to feel it and as much as possible share it uh, it's an incredible moment I'm honored to be able to have this conversation with you we've been talking with Karsten Hoyer who has a book being caribou published by Mountaineers books um, what can I say I it, it uh, I believe we've said all that we can at this point um, just tell people now how they can find out more about your work. Where do you go from here? Thanks, Sydney, and, and I really appreciate all you've said, and, and I also really appreciate the opportunity to share this story with you and, and all the listeners. Um, the, 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 the issue uh, about the, specifically concerns the porcupine caribou herd, um, Arctic refuge issue of whether or not to drill for oil and gas on their calving grounds on the coastal plain of Alaska, it, it continues to evolve, and it continues to get put forth and challenged in various bills. Uh, the, the latest go-around just before uh, Christmas in December 2005 was a couple attempts. Uh, one was to attach it to the greater energy and budget bills uh, uh, to, to go in and allow drilling in Arctic Refuge which was a very underhanded attempt to open it up because um, people wouldn't just be voting about the Arctic Refuge. The senators and congressmen were voting about everything from hurricane relief to uh, support for troops in Iraq, all packaged together in one bill. Fortunately, that got re the Arctic Refuge provision for uh, drilling got removed. Uh, no sooner had that happened than... Uh, Senator Stevens from Alaska, in, in sort of very direct attack on the political, on the democratic political process, I think, in my mind anyway, attached it to the defense bill. And that, in turn, uh, uh, got defeated at the last moment in the Senate where they removed it uh, from, the, from the defense bill. So I guess my, the bottom line is for people who want to have a voice, uh, is to uh, access our website, uh, which is www.beingcaribou.com, where we have updates on the constantly changing uh, political challenges that are being put forth to the Arctic Refuge. And ultimately, uh, we're starting with a number of other groups, because there are many hundreds of, of, of conservation groups working on this, uh, where we're starting to put forth a plan uh, that kind of shifts from defense uh, of 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 attacks on the uh, on the Arctic Refuge to an an offensive of getting this last piece of the puzzle, which is the the coastal plain of the Arctic Refuge, uh, protected like the rest of the refuge, which 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 needs to happen, I think, sooner rather than later. So please visit our website. Please stay tuned, and most important of all, uh, please please, if you've been moved in any way uh, by this conversation today and what you've heard, 
and the caribou story uh, because they don't have a voice in our in our human human political process. It's important that you express that voice on their behalf. And so please write, call, talk to your senators, talk to your congressmen. And the one thing I think uh, of anything that I learned while we were in Washington D.C. is how much those direct attempts by the constituents to articulate their concerns actually does have an effect on what the representatives and senators do uh, on Capitol Hill when they're representing you, the voter. Letters do have power. Uh, phone calls do have a tremendous influence. And, and, and the voice of the people ultimately has to be the voice uh, of the politicians. And, and if that system of communication breaks down or is neglected uh, through things like apathy, then, uh, then I think our whole great democratic system that is the very foundation of, of both American and Canadian political systems uh, will degrade and fail. Karsten Hoyer, that's H-E-U-E-R. Uh, your website is beingcaribou.com. Give my regards to Leanne. I, I hope someday we have a chance to meet. And for those people who wish to uh, become part of this and really, really embrace it, I encourage you to buy the book, quite honestly. Uh, Mountaineers Books, uh, it's available all over the place, uh, Amazon and bookstores and places. And you're also going to be doing tours and uh, there's movies out. Uh, where can people, f they can go to the website, but where, are you, where do you expect to be in the future here? Yeah, the 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 uh, website does have a schedule of of our uh, speaking engagements. Uh, I'm at the National Geographic Society in Washington D.C. in early February, uh, the Explorers Club in New York uh, the week after that, 